Let's turn our attention to our text for this morning. I want to encourage you, if you have the ability, to stand with us as we read. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 through 32, pens the following words. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You may be seated. Number one on your outline this morning, if you're taking notes, or number four in the progression of put-ons is this. Our new life in Christ should be marked by words that build up instead of tear down. Our new life in Christ should be marked by words that build up instead of tear down. Let me draw your attention to verse 29. Paul says again, let no corrupting talk Interesting language there. No corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. I think Paul gives us three very clear characteristics of Christ-like speech here in verse 29. The first characteristic that we see right on the surface of the text is this. As believers, our words should be edifying. Our words should be edifying. That's what Paul means when he says, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths. He says, our words should be edifying. The word translated corrupt or unwholesome there in verse 29, it's the word sapros. It means uh, really to decay or to putrefy or to rot away. It describes things that are rotten, corrupt, disgusting, perishing, rank, foul, worthless, Matter of fact, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 7, that word there, uh, sapros, is used to describe a diseased tree that produces worthless or diseased fruit. Remember, Jesus said a good tree is marked by good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. Bad there, translated in your Bible, is the Greek word sapros there. Bad fruit. The same word is used in Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 13, used to describe fish that were discarded from the catch. Jesus said this, he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but the bad they discarded. Same word there, bad. Has the idea of of decaying, rotten, putrid, worthless, useless. In secular Greek writing, the word sapros there was used to describe rotten grapes that were left on the ground, spoiled fish, or even crumbling stones. We've all seen the the facade of a building that's beginning to crumble away. Now put that in context when Paul says your word should be building up, not crumbling others down. Getting the idea of the word there? The basic meaning of the word relates to the process of decay that renders something unusable and unfit, even harmful. Now, Think about our words. Our words can be unusable, unfit, unprofitable for those whose ears they land on. See, Paul presents us with a picture of a repugnant nature here. The nature of the old self, the old garment that was characterized by rotten speech. Just like that rotten fruit left on the ground or just like that rotten fish doesn't nourish anyone, so unwholesome talk nourishes No one. 
Instead of rotten fare that contaminates and sickens and smells foul and creates an unpleasant atmosphere for all who come near and all who hear, we are to use words that build others up, that edify them, that are useful, profitable, that instead of causing rot and decay, nourish and give life. Is that what characterizes our speech? Is that what characterizes our speech? Or is our speech sapros, unwholesome, sickening to all who hear? The first characteristic of our language here is that it should be edifying. The second thing that I think we see very clearly right off the top of the text here is that as believers, our words should be appropriate. Paul tells us that. He says, as fits the occasion. Not only should they be edifying or building others up, but they should be appropriate words. Words that fit the occasion. You see, it's not that every word that we speak is is to be of great significance, but it's that what we say should be fitting for the situation so that it, it constructively contributes to a person's spiritual nourishment. Obviously, we should never speak about things that might harm or discourage or intentionally disappoint others. Some things, though they are absolutely true and perfectly wholesome, are sometimes better left unsaid. Some things, though they are absolutely true and even could be considered wholesome, are sometimes better left unsaid. Solomon tells us that in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19. He says, when words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. I heard a man say one time, he said, one of the the greatest evidences of true conversion is not that a person begins to speak in tongues, but rather that he begins to hold the tongue that he has. Lest there be any doubt about my theology of the spiritual gifts, I think tongues have ceased. It's probably important that I mention that there. But the, the... The mark of a truly converted person isn't isn't the speaking of tongues. It's that he has the ability to tame the one that he has by the grace of God. Is that true of us? Is that true of us? You know, a careless word may kindle strife. A cruel word may wreck a life. A bitter word may hate and still. A brutal word may smite and kill. A gracious word, though, may smooth the way. A joyous word may light the day. A timely word may lessen stress. A loving word may heal and bless. Think about our language. And let me remind you again here, I'm in the crosshairs with you. I got a mouth that sometimes is a little overactive. The third thing that I think we see clearly on the surface of the text here in verse 29, the third characteristic of our speech is that as believers, our words should be gracious. Paul instructs us here that our words should give grace to those who hear. Not only should they build up and be edifying, not only should they be timely or appropriate as fits the occasion, but they should give grace to those who hear. We're to speak in such a way as our words become a vehicle and demonstration of the grace of God. That is the very purpose of speech anyway, to communicate truth. Truth and grace. Are our words a vehicle, a demonstration of the grace of God? They should point others to Christ. Friends, there is no such thing as a neutral word. Our words, they either direct others to the grace of God or they distract others from the grace of God. There is no such thing as a neutral word. 
They're either pushing people towards Christ or distracting people and detracting people away from him. Think about the weight of our words here. It's it's hard to read Paul's language here, Paul's words here, without thinking of James' words concerning the power of our tongue. Uh, Let me direct your attention for uh, the the sake of time. I won't have you turn there this morning, but James chapter 3. Just write that in the margin of your notes. James chapter 3, verses 2 through 12. James gives us kind of a theology of our words there in chapter 3. would encourage you to go back and study those verses. James tells us that the tongue, though it's a small member of our body, has the ability to cause massive destruction. Just like a small rudder can turn a large ship, so our tongue has massive power. It has the ability to set a forest ablaze. He says. And the question I have for us is this is do we predominantly have a tongue problem or do we predominantly have a heart problem? Do we predominantly have a tongue problem or do we predominantly have a heart problem? Uh, let me submit to you that we will never have tongue control until we have heart control. It's predominantly a heart issue. What comes out of our mouth, Luke 6:45, is an overflow of our hearts. Out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, Luke said, Luke 6, 45. There's an old children's song called the Skeleton Dance. Some of you moms may be familiar. It teaches how the body is connected. It says this, the foot bone's connected to the ankle bone, and the ankle bone's connected to the leg bone, and the leg bone's connected to the knee bone, and the knee bone's connected to the thigh bone. But what the song interestingly leaves out is the fact that your mouth and your heart are connected. We speak what we speak because of what's in our hearts. Out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your mouth serves as a barometer for your heart. If you want to know what's going on in a person's heart, just listen for a few minutes to the way they speak. People who haven't experienced grace or who understand very little of the grace they have received oftentimes speak with very little grace. People whose speech is characterized by graciousness understand the depth of the grace that they've been shown. Those who fill their hearts with truth and grace, the truth and grace of Christ, spill that gracious speech onto all they come in contact with. Out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Think about this. I, uh, I like diet soft drinks. I like diet Mountain Dew. You take Diet Mountain Dew, and, and you take a, a clear, translucent glass, and you pour that Diet Mountain Dew in the cup. What forms on the inside of the cup? Bubbles. That's right, bubbles. And if you take the cup and you agitate the cup, what happens to those bubbles? They all rise to surface. You see, out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We say what we say because it comes spewing forth from our hearts just like those bubbles in the cup come to surface when it's agitated. The reason we get angry, we talked about last week, I said that anger is the result of of a a failed idolatry. We all have an idol factory in our hearts, and we get angry because we love our idols, we worship our idols, we bow down to our idols, we put our idols on a pedestal. And when someone else comes into the picture that shakes the pedestal, and there our, our idol is wavering on the pedestal, and we fear that it might come crashing down to the ground and shatter, we get angry. Out of an overflow of the heart, 
the mouth speaks. So what's the remedy then for a struggling tongue? Well, it's a heart that's filled with the truth and grace of Christ. If we fill our hearts with truth and love, the truth and love of Christ, the truth and love of Christ will come out of our mouths. It's a relatively simple equation. Input equals output. You put bad gas in your car, and your car doesn't run well. It's an idle well. It pings. It's got, it's got, very, uh, it's got low compression. The acceleration is poor. Input equals output. Garbage in, garbage out. So, if I'm filling my heart and mind with the, the grace and the truth of Christ from his word, then it shouldn't surprise me that what comes out of my mouth is seasoned with salt now. We should never have to say, now take this with a grain of salt. We should never have to preface our statements with that. Because our, our speech should always be characterized by grace. Seasoned with salt. Salt preserves that to which it's supplied. It retards decay. Sapros means to decay. Let no unwholesome. Sapros, come out of your mouths. Well, salt, seasoned with salt. Speech that is seasoned with salt is the very opposite of that. Colossians 4, 6. Be a good verse for you to memorize. Colossians 4, 6. Our words should always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you might know how to answer each person. See, our words have the power of life and death. Our words sink more than ships. They oftentimes destroy marriages, end friendships, spread rumors, split churches, incite violence, and spew venom in all directions. You see, our tongue, I'd I'd have you reach out and grab your tongue, but then nobody would shake your hand after the end of the service. But your tongue has the power to express or to repress, to release or to restrain, to enlighten or to obscure, to adore or to abhor. To offend or to befriend, to affirm or to alienate, to build or belittle, comfort or criticize, delight or destroy. That's the power of that little member that sits right between your teeth. The tongue. Friends, I want to encourage you to this point too. The things you say can and should be forgiven, but they can't be forgotten. The things that come out of our mouths, me included, can and should be forgiven by our brothers and sisters. But we need to remember that the things we say are oftentimes not forgotten. A man once came to his mentor and asked how he could make amends for falsely accusing his friend. And his mentor told him, go and put a feather on every doorstep in your neighborhood and then collect them the following day. And he looks at his mentor and he says, but that's impossible. The wind will have scattered them all beyond recall. And the mentor replied, so it is with your reckless words. How are we using our words? Think before you speak. All too often, we are fire ready aim with our words instead of ready aim fire. We speak without thinking. We speak without thinking. We would do far less damage with our tongues if we just spoke less. If we just spoke less. Think before you speak, though. We want to be ready, aim, fire. The Proverbs repeatedly, the Proverbs are are, are replete with with verses about how uh, we should deal with our speech. Listen to just a couple here. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 3. He who guards his lips guards his life, but he who speaks rashly will come to ruin. How about Proverbs 17, 27? A man of knowledge uses his words, here's the key word, 
with restraint. Knowledgeable men, knowledgeable women use their words with restraint. Proverbs 17, 28, the very next verse, even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent and discerning if he holds his tongue. Before you speak, I want to encourage you to ask three things here. You can file this. If you're anything like me, you might think in grids. I love grids. I love number one, two, three, A, B, C. It just kind of helps me to hang thoughts in my mind here. Let me give you a grid. T-K-N. T-K-N. Think about this before you speak. Is what I'm about to say true? Is what I'm about to say true? Now, we need to come right on the heels of that and say, is it timely? Is it appropriate for the situation? Even if it is true, we need to ask ourselves, is it T? Is it true? Secondly, K, is it kind? Is it going to build up or is it going to tear down? And then lastly, N, is it necessary? Is it true? Is it kind? And is it necessary? If it doesn't meet those requirements, hold your tongue. And even though you hold your tongue, you may still have to do some heart searching, okay? Because just because evil doesn't spew from our mouths doesn't mean it's not simmering in our hearts, okay? TKN, is it true? Is it necessary? Is it kind? Thinking about your words, are are your words profitable? Do they build others up? Are they useful for edification? Let me just ask you some application questions here. Just, Just think. Don't write. You can get these questions later uh, if you want to. My manuscript will be online in its entirety. But just think here for a moment. Do your words reveal frustration with people and circumstances? If so, they're probably unwholesome words. Do your words attempt to take control? If so, it's possible that they are unwholesome words. Do your words respond poorly when your plans are thwarted? Do your words respond poorly when God sends suffering or disappointment your way? Do your words encourage others around you to rest in God's sovereign care? If not, it's possible they're unwholesome, unprofitable words. Do your words point to evidences of God's loving hand? Do your words reveal the encouraging work that God is doing in others? Do your words reveal that you are resting in God's control or that you're wrestling with it? What do your words reveal when others stand in the way of your desires? What do your words reveal when others seem to be blessed and you seem to be passed by? Do your words express a heart of gratitude and thankfulness? How often are grumbling and complaining a part of your everyday conversations? Do your words express a critical, impatient, or accusatory heart? You've been using your words more for winning others or for warfare against them. Have your words revealed that you're acting more as an agent of discord or an agent of reconciliation? Just some questions to ponder. Paul says, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only such as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Our new life in Christ should be marked by a tongue that is radically changed. The second point in your outline this morning is this. Our new life in Christ should be marked by an increasing sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. 
Let me direct your attention to verse 30. Paul says this, he says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You see, your words not only have an effect on you and the person with whom you're speaking. Look back at verse 30 again. There's a third party listening to our words. There's a third party involved in our unwholesome words, if that's what they are. Or our righteous words, if that's what they are. The Greek construct of verse 30 is literally this. And do not grieve the Spirit, the Holy One of God. That's what the Greek literally reads there. And do not grieve the Spirit, the Holy One of God. You see, Paul puts an emphasis here on the holiness of God. God's holiness means that he's absolutely set apart and opposed to all sin and all evil. Even that sin and that evil that comes spewing out of our mouths. Now, 1 John 1, 5 John tells us that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. He's holy. 1 Timothy 6.16, God dwells in unapproachable light. He's holy. Isaiah's vision of God in Isaiah 6.3, the angels cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. He's holy. He's the Holy Spirit. Paul emphasizes that in verse 30 here. The Holy One of God. You see, there's a popular misunderstanding that God's grace means that in some way he might tolerate or entertain a certain amount of sin in his children. Uh, Much like a doting father sees his toddler disobey and might chuckle to himself, uh, he's just a chip off the old block. But the Holy Spirit never chuckles at our sin. He's holy, and that means that all sin, especially the sin of his redeemed children, grieves his heart. When his children refuse to put off the grave clothes... And to put on the grace clothes, it grieves his heart. The Holy Spirit is pained when Christians lie instead of speaking truth. He's pained when when we become unrighteous instead of righteously angry. He's pained when we steal instead of working hard and sharing with those in need. He's pained when we speak in such a way as tears others down instead of communicating grace. You see, every taint of ingratitude or self-will or unbelief or harbored wickedness by the believer, it violates the new creation to which we belong, and it grieves the Holy Spirit. Friends, our, our walk should never, our walk as a Christian should never be characterized as careless. A careless walk should never characterize a Christian's life. We must remember that the one who resides in us, the one whose spirit we've been sealed with, the promised Holy Spirit guaranteeing the redemption that is to come, way back in chapter 1, is holy, holy, holy. Charles Spurgeon, who's been noted as the prince of preachers, said this once. He said, I think I now see the Spirit of God grieving. When you're sitting down to read a novel, and there's your Bible unread. Perhaps you take some book of travels, and you forget that you've got a much more precious book of travels in the book of Acts, the story of your blessed Lord and Master. You have no time for prayer, but the Holy Spirit sees that you're very active about worldly things and having many hours to spare for relaxation and amusement. And then he's grieved because he sees that you love worldly things better than you love him. Those are our idols that we enthrone. We get angry when people bump them. He goes on to say, although we would grieve 
the Holy Spirit. The word grieve is a painful one, yet there's honey in the rock. For it's an inexpressibly delightful thought that he who rules heaven and earth and is the creator of all things, the infinite and ever-blessed God condescends himself to enter into such infinite relationships with his people that his divine mind may be affected by our actions, either pleasing him or grieving him. What a marvel that deity should be said to grieve over the faults of being so utterly insignificant as we are. Sin everywhere must be displeasing to the spirit of holiness, but sin in his own people is grievous to him in the highest degree. He will not hate his people, but he does hate their sins, and he hates them all the more because they nestle in his children's bosom. The spirit would not be the spirit of truth if he could approve of that which is false in us. He would not be pure if that which is impure did not grieve him. Our sin can never separate us from the Spirit. It never separates us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, but it does grieve his heart. It does grieve his heart that he dwells within us. And when we sin, we bring him into that. And his heart is pained. The Holy Spirit, because He's holy, hates sin and He cannot but shrink away from it. Therefore, if we wish to avoid grieving or hurting Him, we shall also shrink away from our sin. Every genuinely converted, Spirit-filled believer desires to bring God and His Spirit, the third person of the triune Godhead, pleasure and not pain. How do we do that, you ask? Let me have you glance back verses 22 through 24. How do we do that? How do we please the Holy Spirit and not grieve Him? Just glance back at verses 22 through 24. Paul says this, put off your old self. Put off the grave clothes which belong to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, grace clothes created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. As believers, our new life in Christ should be marked with an increasing sensitivity, an increasing desire to please God. Instead of continuing in our old manner and our old way of life, which grieves and pains His heart. If there is no sensitivity in your heart for the grieving of the Holy Spirit... I submit to you that it's possible that you've never had a changed heart. If you can sin and it does not pain your heart because it pains the heart of God, then you may not be truly converted. And if that's you, I would would cry out to you this morning, repent and believe right where you sit. Today is the day of salvation. We're not guaranteed another moment, and that's, that's not to frighten you, that's reality, my friends. I mean, you could go get in your car and drive out of the parking lot, be T-boned at the intersection of King's Highway and Mount Auburn, and be dead this afternoon. There's appointed each man one time to die, and then there's judgment. Will you be found in Christ, secure in Him, or found in the first Adam? 
whose grave clothes cover you. Think about that. Think soberly about that. Paul encouraged us, and I'm encouraged myself to do this, to examine ourselves, to see whether we are in the faith. Does my life exemplify that of true conversion? Is there, is there fruit in my life? And we're all a work in progress if we become believers. That's Philippians 1.6, being confident in this, that he who began a good work and you will complete it. We're not the end product. We won't be until the day that we stand in glory. The day of redemption that Paul talks about here in verse 30. But if the buds of righteousness are not at least present on the vine in our lives, then it is possible that we've never come to true saving faith in Christ. And if that's you, repent. Turn from your sin and believe. Cast yourself upon Christ. Believe in Him and Him alone. There's one name given among men whereby we must be saved, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll have no other excuse, no other alibi on that day than Christ and His righteousness imputed to your account alone. There must be an increasing sensitivity to the Holy Spirit in our lives. Let me take what Time we have left this morning, and let me draw your attention to verses 31 and 32. This is the sixth and last mark that we find here in the text. It's number three on your outline, simply this. Our new life in Christ should be marked by a tender spirit of kindness and forgiveness. Our new life in Christ should be marked by a tender spirit of kindness and forgiveness. Let me draw your attention again to verses 31 and 32. Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another and tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. See, in verses uh, 31 and 32 here, Paul gives us five heart attitudes that we're to be putting off and three virtues that we're to be putting on. Uh, when we put off, when we think about that which we're to put off, we must always fill the void. We must always fill the vacuum for, for the unrighteous heart attitude that I put off, I must replace it with something. I don't just put things off, put them off. I put them off because they're a part of the grave clothes, the old man, the old manner of life. I must put on that which is pleasing and honoring to Christ. Paul gives us that put on, put off method here. In Ephesians chapter 4, We have a redeemed heart if we know Christ, but that redeemed heart resides in a fallen flesh. And our natural tendency, even as believers, though we should be growing in holiness, though we should be growing in righteousness, though we are not sinless, we should be sinning less. Okay? But our natural tendency in this flesh is to sin. And the natural tendency of sin is to grow into greater sin. You see, a Christian's sin can grow just like an unbeliever's sin can grow. If it's not checked, our inner sins of bitterness and wrath and anger will inevitably lead to the outer sins that Paul lists here of clamor and slander and malice. Look with me at what Paul exhorts us to put away here in verses 31 and 32. First, he says, put away all bitterness. Put away all bitterness. The word bitterness there has the idea of that which is is uh, pugnant or even poisonous. It's a word that was used to speak of bitter or poisonous food or drink uh, in Scripture. As a matter of fact, in Revelation chapter 8, verse 11, uh, we're told of water that was bitter and caused those who drank it to die. It's a fitting word, bitterness, there, because it describes poisoned relationships. What is, what is bitterness? Uh, let me define it briefly for you here. 
What is bitterness? Bitterness is anger that's been nurtured and kept alive. Bitterness is anger that's been nurtured and kept alive. It's the smoldering fire of resentment, a grudge-filled attitude that consumes us from the inside. We see it most often in ourselves when we feel victimized in some way. Paul forbids us to harbor it. He disallows us to coddle it. He says, let it be put away from you. And here's what you need to know, friends. Bitterness is sticky stuff, okay? And it resists cleanup. So we need God's help to uh, help us replace a bitter heart with a forgiving heart. We can't do it on our own. That's John 15, 5, right? I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me uh, and I in him, he'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, finish the sentence, you can do nothing. We can't go root bitterness out of our heart by ourselves. We need God to help us. We need the Holy Spirit that resides and dwells within us. Help us root it out. Paul says, put away all bitterness. That, that poisonous, smoldering ember of anger in our heart that we oftentimes coddle and nurse. Paul says, put it away. Second, Paul says, put away all wrath and anger. Put away all wrath and anger. Group those two things together there because there's very little distinction between the two. Bitterness, if allowed to smolder, it turns into wrath and anger. Wrath, if I I had to make a distinction, I would say this. Wrath is passion in the moment. Wrath is passion in the moment. It's flying off the handle. Anger would be that deep internal feeling of resentment and hostility. And it's interesting to note that Paul brings up the whole issue of anger here again. Remember, Paul brought up anger in verse 26. He said, be angry and do not sin. And then he brings up anger here again, just a few verses later. How important is the topic and theme? If Paul begins to to reiterate himself again, just verses later. Here Paul says, let all anger be put away from you. I think the reason that Paul brings up anger again in this negative sense is because we experience righteous anger far too little. Wrathful, angry Christians are a scandal to the Prince of Peace. Wrathful, angry Christians, it's scandalous to the Prince of Peace. You know what's happened when you're angry? What's happened when you're angry? When you're angry at others, you have, and I have, I'm in the crosshairs here, at least momentarily stopped being in awe of your own forgiveness. When when you are embittered and angry, wrathful, we have at least in that moment ceased to be thankful for our own forgiveness. We've stopped marveling that the grace of God has been shown to us. We've ceased to be amazed that despite our failures, Christ does not treat us as our sins deserve. Anger is a thankful problem, just like our speech is a heart problem. So anger then is really doubly sinful because it's not just an anger problem, but it's also a thankfulness problem. You see, when you're struggling with anger, let me encourage you to do two things. Number one, let me encourage you to pray and ask the Lord to give you a thankful heart for the mercy and grace and forgiveness that he's shown you. Ask God to give you a thankful heart for your own salvation when you're tempted to be angry. And then second of all, 
Pray for the very person with whom you're angry. Pray for that person. It's interesting to note that God, in his infinite wisdom, seems to give you a love for the things and people you pray for. Pray for the person that you're angry with. Third, Paul says, put away all clamor. The word clamor there, it means to shout. It's an outcry of strife. It's a public outburst. A clamor is when anger loses control. That's what clamor is. You know the old saying, he or she didn't mean what they said? That's a lie. We always mean what we say. If Luke 6.45 is true, out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. I just said what was in my heart. He didn't mean or she didn't mean or I didn't mean what I said is actually an abrogation of my sin. Clamor just means that I've gotten to the point where I don't care if the filter is there or not. And all the junk of my heart comes spewing forth like a volcano. And this ought not be so with those who have put on Christ. Paul calls us to put away clamor and instead to replace it with wholesome talk from a humble, gracious heart. Fourth, Paul says, put away all slander. Put away all slander. The Greek word here is blasphema. Blasphema. You see, blasphemy isn't only a sin committed against God. You can blaspheme another individual. A slander is a good translation because it conveys the elements of evil intent and untrue charges. Slander is reviling and cursing uh, is what it is. It's any untruth that I speak uh, that's intended to undermine another person's credibility. A slander would be a part of the theft back in our last few passages. It's stealing someone's reputation by speaking about them that which is untrue or even that which is not completely true. Gossip and slander, they're great friends. They often accompany one another. It's important to note also that slander isn't limited to spoken words. You can slander someone in an email. You can slander uh, slander someone in a text message. You can slander someone by posting something on Facebook and whatever else comes next in the train of technology. It isn't the method, but it's the intent that qualifies something as slanderous. Paul says, put it away. Put it away. Lastly, Paul says, put away malice. Malice here literally means badness. We don't use that word like that, but that's a literal translation. It means badness. It can also be translated as depravity or malignity. We get our word malignant. It's malicious, malignant thoughts. It grows, produces more and more evil. Malice is evil that's allowed to permeate the heart in such a way as it inspires us to plot against someone else. It's that heart that says, I'll get you back. You treated me this way. You said, I'll get you back. I'll settle the score. And we may not say that, but that can be the attitude of our heart, right? A malicious heart. A malicious heart forgets that God said, never avenge yourselves, but I'll take care of it. Malice characterizes our pre-conversion life, and we should actively be putting it off as we grow in grace. Five things there that we should be putting off. Let me briefly here give you the three put-ons. Paul says, first, be kind to one another. Be kind to one another. The word kindness there expresses the material usefulness of things with regard to their goodness and pleasantness and softness. Kindness. Not only are we to speak things that are useful to one another, but we are to act in a way as is useful, beneficial, serviceable to others. 
See, gentle, or kindness rather, is a, it's gentle, it's gracious, it's that easy-to-be-entreated disposition that allows others to be at peace in our presence. Kindness. Kindness. It's interesting to note the word kind here comes from uh, the word kin and kindred. To relate kindly with others is to relate to them as our own kin. You see, kindness stands in a stark contrast to a harsh, hard, bitter, sharp, and caustic individual. No one wants to be around a person like that, who's wound up tighter than an eight-day clock and whose springs may explode at any moment in time. Next, Paul says to be tender-hearted. To be tender-hearted. The Greek word there is splanknon. It's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible word. It's translated tender-hearted here, but it can also be translated as compassion or sympathetic. The word splanknon was used to describe that deep feeling in the bowels that Jesus felt in Matthew chapter 9 as he stood up over the, 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 the mass of humanity and, and said that he was, he was compassionate because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus felt compassion. Literally, he was turned upside down in his bowels. His heart hurt. His insides hurt. He was compassionate, tender-hearted, because they were broken like sheep without a shepherd. He was pained to the core. You know, what if instead of being embittered and hard-hearted over the sin that others committed against you, what if it broke your heart instead? What if instead of being angry at others when they sin against you, it breaks your heart when others sin against you because you're concerned more for the glory of God than you are for your own name and your own renown and your own rights? What if instead of saying, I'm through with you, you said, I can relate to you because I'm a sinner just like you? Just as meat is tenderized when you marinate it, so your heart and mine will grow increasingly tender as we let it marinate in the truth of God's word. If we're not letting our heart and mind be tenderized by the word of God, it's no surprise that we act the way that we do, and it's no surprise that we speak the way that we speak. Because there's, there's no input that's any different from the input of the rest of the world. Garbage in, garbage out. It's a pretty simple equation. Lastly, Paul says, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Those who have themselves been cleared of the crushing debt of their sin must not exact from their brothers and sisters the petty debt of others. Love suffers long and it puts the best construction on the most irksome behavior of others. Perhaps the most graphic picture of forgiveness is illustrated in the parable recorded in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 25. It's the parable of the unforgiving servant. Remember when Peter came to Jesus and he asked him, Jesus, what are the limits on forgiveness? Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And Jesus replied to him and told him the story of a man who had an unpayable debt. Jesus said this. Jesus said, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, the one who was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, out of compassion, out of tenderheartedness for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him of his debt. What a picture of salvation that is. God forgiving the unpayable debt of unrighteous rebellion against him. 
Unfortunately, though, that forgiven servant went and found one of his fellow servants who had a small amount of debt in comparison and imprisoned him for non-payment. You see, the very one who had eagerly accepted comprehensive forgiveness from his master wouldn't forgive a small petty debt of another. You see, friends, the forgiven servant in Matthew 18, that's you and that's me. That's you and that's me, oftentimes, who have been given an incal- or have been forgiven an incalculable debt and yet oftentimes turn to our brothers and sisters, our spouses, our children, our friends, and exact from them payment that is much more insignificant. I am the servant of Matthew chapter 18. To us, Paul says, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Is there a person in your life this morning that you've been sinfully withholding forgiveness from? Can we just pause and give you a moment to think about that? Is there a person in your life that you have been sinfully withholding forgiveness from? If so, I want to encourage you to go and reconcile with your brother or your sister. Brothers and sisters, we all fail. James tells us that we all sin in many ways. We all struggle to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We all lose our temper and are selfishly angered. We're all thieves. And greater than petty theft, we have robbed God of the glory that is due his great name, and we do it every time we sin. Every one of us struggles with a foul mouth, letting words escape that destroy instead of building others up. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we entertain our sin. And we love our idols instead of standing in reverence and in awe of Christ. And each one of us, in each one of us, are the seeds of bitterness, wrath, clamor, slander, malice, unkindness, lack of compassion, and unforgiveness. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that where we failed, Jesus Christ succeeded. Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of Man, the true and better Adam, who is without trace or stain of sin, has come to save hell-bound men and women just like you and just like me.